You are listening to Feminist Current. I'm Megan Murphy. The notion that sex matters in terms of the law is a fairly new one. It wasn't until relatively recently that discrimination against pregnant women was considered to be discrimination against women specifically. In 1974, an American court determined that differential treatment based on pregnancy merely distinguishes between a group consisting of pregnant women and a group consisting of non-pregnant persons. In other words, this type of discrimination was considered only to be discriminatory against those who are pregnant rather than against those capable of giving birth, i.e. females specifically. Non-pregnant persons is, of course, not sex-specific. But we know today, thanks to the work of feminists, that women have been discriminated against in a myriad of ways, notably in the workplace on account of their assumed ability to become pregnant, regardless of whether or not they actually are pregnant at that very moment. In her paper, Pregnant Persons, The Linguistic Defanging of Women's Issues and the Legal Danger of Brain Sex Language, Andrea Orwall addresses the danger of linguistically erasing women as a class from the law, all the while incorporating sex stereotypes into it. She writes... The language of the law should acknowledge and constitutionally protect real biological sex differences precisely because they are real, because they are based in the body, the only plane of reality that the law can effectively govern, and because they have historically imposed and continue today to impose material consequences on women. At the same time, the law should refuse to participate in the ages-old practice of stereotyping and disenfranchising the female sex based on assumed mental capacities. Andrea Orwall is a first-year attorney and an alumna of William S. Boyd School of Law at the University of Nevada, Las Vegas. Her paper was published in the Nevada Law Journal in 2017. I spoke with her over the phone about the history of women-centered language and law and why it still matters. Here's that interview. First, can you tell me a little bit about your academic background and what led you to write about the erasure of women from legal discourse and under the law more broadly? So I graduated in 2009 with a minor in women and gender studies from Whittier College, uh, pretty much from my freshman year in undergrad, I had found myself drawn to the feminist literature. I was an English major, but my focus was kind of on women in language and uh, women authors, which kind of segued just perfectly into my legal studies. I started at William S. Boyd School of Law at UNLV in 2014. And um, while you're in law school, you don't exactly have a, um, you know, focus as it were, like you do in undergrad in the United States, where you have a major. Um, There's a lot of opportunity to take individual classes on areas of the law that interest you the most. And for me, it was legal feminism. Um, So when I joined the journal and got an opportunity to write my own article. I wanted to write specifically about the language of the law and women because of my background as an English major, as a women gender studies 
student. And I wanted to tell this little anecdote about uh, my alma mater. I went to their website earlier today, and it kind of hit me like a punch to the gut. They've changed their women's and gender studies to gender studies, um, specifically kind of referencing something I talk about in my article where the word women is being cut out of so many of these discussions. Yeah, I've noticed that pattern too, obviously, over the past decade or so, and it's pretty troubling. Right. I've seen the language change so much in just under the decade since I graduated from Whittier College. Mm-hmm. So it's not so long ago that pregnancy discrimination wasn't considered to be discrimination against women specifically. How did the court previously understand and address discrimination based on pregnancy? So I'm kind of confined to a discussion of American law, which adopts a lot from English common law. So I'll keep that in mind. But specifically in the U.S., it's one of these areas where the law didn't even talk about it until a particular Supreme Court case brought it to light. Uh, So this was the 1974 Supreme Court case of Geduldig, and that specifically decided pregnancy discrimination wasn't sex discrimination. Uh, So this was, you know, 40 years ago that this precedent from our highest court came down. Fortunately, just four years later, Congress was actually the governmental body that decided that that was not correct. They updated the federal legal understanding with the Pregnancy Discrimination Act of 1978. But before that point, you could essentially fire a woman for being pregnant. That was not illegal under federal law until that point in time. So when was it that women-specific language began to be used in the legal system? One of the key uh, legal feminists, Catherine McKinnon, will tell you that constitutions have largely been man-made and that shows. And I think that's especially true in English common law and then in the American jurisprudence. You'll see so much of our law has left out women or when it's referenced us, it's been to our disadvantage. Uh, we have letters all the way back to the U.S. founding uh, that shows women were not satisfied with the way the law spoke about them. Abigail Adams asked her husband to remember the ladies during the uh, constitutional um, conventions. And he essentially laughed off the idea. The English common law is pretty rife with this legalized misogyny that I talk about in my paper One of the key ideas there was coverture, in which a married woman was essentially one legal identity with her husband. She didn't have a a single identity of her own. And um, in my opinion, that shows the biological roots of this sex-based discrimination in the law. Women as legal property, women's children as her husband's property. Um, Fortunately, In the 19th and early 20th century, we started having some laws that drew attention to the fact that if the law was going to protect women, it had to specifically name them. So the Married Women's Property Acts had to be enacted because without them, the coverture system basically made it so women had no economic rights on their own, um, no legal rights on their own. Um, We fast forward to the early 20th century with our 19th Amendment, uh, giving women the right to vote, but Even at that point, no other rights were extended to women. It was just the vote. It was nothing else. Um, Some scholars have talked about how people imagined that the 19th Amendment would broaden women's rights, but it didn't. It didn't name any other rights. They had to be chipped away one at a time. 
So for example, I didn't know this until really recently during my law school career, I found out that U.S. banks all the way up until the mid-70s could require a woman to bring a man to sign with her when she did a credit application. This was in 1974 that this was legal until. It's so recent. Uh, Another example, President Johnson's affirmative action, um, the first foundations of that framework in 1965, uh, no one imagined that that could include women in helping bridge the gap in women's economic disadvantage until somebody specifically, you know, government specifically stated in 1967, oh, right, we also meant this to include women. What's the problem from a legislative perspective in differentiating between pregnant women and non-pregnant persons, but not specifically referencing sex categories. So that's the exact situation you have in the Gedulded case from the 1970s. The court, and I'm quoting here, they decided there was a lack of identity between the excluded disability, that was pregnancy, and gender as such. So the phrase gender as such was able to legally hide the difference between female and male, women and men. Essentially, women were not a unique class that could access the constitutional protections that something like pregnancy discrimination required. So if I can do a quick overview of what class means in U.S. jurisprudence, we have suspect classes that are entitled to federal constitutional protections. So the strict scrutiny classes, that's the highest level of scrutiny that you can use when examining discrimination. Um, So these are race, national origin, alienage. And then we have kind of a quasi-suspect class, and gender is one of those. So it's looked at actually with less scrutiny than something like race. But If you have a category that puts it as pregnant women and non-pregnant people, what's the class you're protecting? Of course, you're going to say, oh, that's not sex discrimination. Um, So that's, that's the danger of that. The U.S. has laws that specifically protect based on class. And if you can't define the class, you can't define the protection. Hmm. Why does it matter that women can become pregnant but not men? So that matters for the historical reason that... The system of coverture, this idea of ownership over our reproductive capacity, has that extends all the way to the beginning of patriarchy. You know, for thousands of years, we've had this system. Um, there are some feminist academics who think it started with agriculture and uh, a way of passing on wealth. If a man didn't know uh, who fathered the children, how could he pass on wealth to them? And our law really has enshrined that uh, all the way back through ancient times, ancient Rome and Greece and other civilizations, and the English common law, and thus the U.S., inherits that. And uh, that has material consequences for women we see today. In your paper, you write, linguistic erasure cannot diminish, let alone extinguish, the real physical consequences of being female-bodied in a system of legalized misogyny. What do you mean by legalized misogyny? So legalized misogyny can describe a set of laws, uh, this is American and internationally, that permits or even requires unfavorable treatment 
of women. For example, that forbids mothers from breastfeeding their babies in public, which of course helps this idea that women should be confined to the home. Actually, Idaho is currently the only state that doesn't have protections for breastfeeding mothers, um, but their house just passed a bill in February of this year, which I was really excited to hear about before the note was published. Um, This happened Other examples of this could be uh, requiring women to take arduous steps to obtain abortion or laws in Arizona and Arkansas that they not only permit, but they actually require doctors to give misleading information about that procedure. Um, It's it's these consequences we hear of all the time in uh, all of the media we've gotten about Women's March. Um, This conversation has gotten really noisy in the States, you know, since the end of 2016, which I was actually quite excited to see. It's a system of laws that essentially disadvantages us for menstruating, for becoming pregnant, um, dealing with these issues at school and at work with people who might not see them as legitimate issues, difficulties accessing abortion, maternal care, forced C-section, not getting consent for medical procedure, uh, I mean, not getting consent from a woman. Uh, for a medical procedure done on her. Um, these th- are, are rampant in our country still to this day. That's legalized misogyny. And, you know, when these days, in any case, when feminists talk about the fact that men and women are different, so we we do have different bodies. Male bodies are different than female bodies. And right. under patriarchy, we have different experiences in the world and we would have different experiences in the world regardless because of our capacity to become pregnant, obviously. Right. And, you know, when we argue that legalized discrimination against women has been historically based on female biology, we're often accused of biological essentialism. I wonder if you can talk about what the difference is between saying, for example, that men and women have different brains or minds or souls or something like that versus saying that men and women are different and that we need to acknowledge those differences from a legal perspective in order to protect women's human rights. Right. So when we talk about women's human rights, my favorite framework to use is uh, international law actually has come quite far in discussing what our human rights are as women. Uh, CEDAW, which is the Convention on the Elimination of All Forms of Discrimination Against Women, is a prime example of using the law to talk about these biological differences and why they're important to acknowledge and then protect against these kind of millennia of disadvantaging of women. Um, That's a key international human rights document. And of course, the US is the only industrialized democracy in the world that hasn't ratified it. So in my opinion, that says something. But that the wide adoption of CEDAW otherwise shows that it's not biological essentialism to acknowledge that women have been legally disadvantaged by our biology all over the world throughout history. We are prevented, and of course speaking beyond the United States right now, we're prevented from going to school when we menstruate, we're prevented from uh, employment opportunities when we become pregnant, we are... um, as the, the Me Too movement shows right now, we are subjected to the casting couch. We are sexualized in the workplace and beyond. These are products of our biological presumed ability to reproduce, the, the assumed ability to be these 
the ones who carry on the next generation. That's the, that's the key of patriarchy. That is the control that patriarchy has over us. And acknowledging that those differences are real and that they've disadvantaged us since time immemorial is not biological essentialism. I think it's ludicrous to suggest that that hasn't had an impact on us over the last however many thousand years. And how have gender stereotypes, you know, like the idea that women are inherently different from men in terms of personality is what I mean by gender and gender stereotypes. For example, the idea that women are inherently timid, delicate, passive, nurturing, or emotional. How have these ideas harmed women historically from a legal context? Right. So when I say we've inherited the English common law, that necessarily includes a kind of Judeo-Christian moral system, these principles that forbid women, for example, from speaking up in church. We're considered not to be, historically, historically considered not to be fit to be spiritual leaders, academic leaders. Coming to United States precedent, we see as, to me, a prime example is in the 1870s where Myra Colby Bradwell was called unfit for the legal profession. The United States Supreme Court decided that it was acceptable in 1872 to forbid women from joining the legal profession. Um, They were naturally timid, and so they weren't fit to be in the courtroom in front of a judge. Or we have the issue from... Uh, 1989 Supreme Court case, Pricewaterhouse versus Hopkins. Fortunately, the plaintiff, the woman in that case won, but in that case, the plaintiff had been disadvantaged for not performing stereotypical femininity in the workplace. Um, you could be full on fired for not wearing a skirt, for not you know performing the beauty regime, for not being timid and passive, as you said. And then even up to our modern jurisprudence, um, Justice Ruth Bader Ginsburg has rightly criticized her fellow justices for focusing on women's fragile emotional state in abortion cases, for example. So to speak of legalized misogyny, that's a great example. You have judges who are appointed for life dictating what a woman's personality, what her mind is like. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And of course, today we have this pretty new concept of gender identity that's being discussed and debated a lot and incorporated into legislation all over the place in Canada, the US, the UK, and lots of other countries as well. You wrote about in your paper the idea of brain sex and the problems with that idea. I wonder how does that idea of brain sex connect to this more modern idea of gender identity? I'm certain there are a dozen different ways of conceptualizing this, but in my opinion and how I think it will impact legal construction, they are the same. Gender identity has this notion that sex is between the ears. That is brain sex. It's the same idea. It's saying that there are hardwired differences in our brains And those are the things that make us female or male, regardless of our actual biology, our organs or our chromosomes, our lived experience of growing up as a girl or a boy. But that kind of framework is exactly what women like Myra Bradwell in the 1870s and the plaintiff in Pricewaterhouse in the 1980s were fighting against. This idea that there is some quintessential feeling, quintessential personality, quintessential soul that is woman. 
And that's what makes you a woman. And so now we have, instead of titles like why men don't listen and why women can't read maps, instead of that being incredibly insulting, which I think it should be, people find it scientific. And once it's scientific, the U.S. Supreme Court starts paying attention. Um, in the States, we have what's called a Brandeis brief. And that is where, you know, various data from social science, from hard sciences will come into um, a Supreme Court case in the form of a, an amicus brief from a non-party that will try to inform the court about current, you know, scientific issues, essentially. And if you have people, for example, peddling this idea of brain sex, this idea that male and female is not a body-based reality, it is some ineffable concept that lives in our brains or our spirits or whatnot, I think we're going to run into a lot of problems. And I wonder, I mean, how closely have you looked at this new gender identity legislation that's being developed or proposed today? I wonder, I mean, if you have looked at it, what your thoughts are. So I have a, several thoughts there about the types of gender identity legislation that I feel would be appropriate and the types I think are not appropriate. And the, the types I think we, we need are the types that protect people in employment, housing, other aspects of life that are ripe for discrimination where, you know, you can't fire somebody based on the way they present, um, you know, the way they dress, um, the kind of speech and mannerisms they use. I mean, that was the core of Price Waterhouse, that case of the 1980s. I think that's acceptable. That kind of, you know, our Title VII, which is the uh, federal set of legislation that um, protects based on certain categories like race or gender or any number of things, that gender identity belongs there to say you need those protections. But when you go into a framework where we replace the term sex with gender identity, which I have seen happen, I think that is when it's inappropriate because what that does is puts us back in a situation from the Geduldig case in the 1970s where we erase women, adult human females, as a separate suspect class. I think we can have both. But my fear and what I'm seeing is that we want to, you know, the, the postmodern identity movement wants to push the brain sex, the gender identity as the only framework. And you talked about this, you know, rebranding, you could call it, of women's studies departments across North America as gender studies. And you've also talked about the way that pregnant women has been replaced with the term pregnant people in the past. And that seems to be happening again today. You call this linguistic erasure. I wonder if you can talk more about that idea and where else you're seeing this happen and, you know, what what's the danger of erasing women in all these various areas? Ooh, that's a big question. Um, so, I mean, obviously people, I think people like you and I see it every day. I'm seeing it in the law. I am seeing it in terms of what spaces we are allowed to have for ourselves um, as just one example I can think of, I watched a, a pretty interesting documentary on the disappearance of lesbian bars in the LGBT scene. Um, because if the term woman is so broad now that woman simply means anyone who identifies as a woman, you can't have a woman's bar. Um, it's simply not possible. We see stories about who was allowed in various sports teams. And that, you know, this, this idea is kind of beyond what I wrote about in my note. And frankly, 
I think it's a bigger topic and would require a lot more research, but I think that does have damaging effects on female bodied people because there are the biological differences that we have to acknowledge um, in terms of everything from, you know, physical strength is, is a difference that we have to acknowledge the, the idea of women's colleges potentially being erased if we if we can't define what a woman is, how can we have a women's college? Should we even have a women's college? Will we get to the point where gender identity has overtaken sex as a category in the law and you, you can't have a women's college because it's discriminatory, even though research shows that uh, women who attend such schools often do you know exceptionally well in business and other areas. So we're we're essentially at risk of being run out of our own spaces and having the law support our exile. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. I just want to read this quote from you that I read in your paper that I thought was quite good. Um, So you write, The law cannot tolerate a postmodern interpretation of brain sex that may well send the women's movement back decades. It cannot permit stereotypical sex differences to reinsert themselves as legal realities under a shoddy scientific framework that insists that suddenly we're no longer being old-fashioned and sexist, we're being modern and scientific. I wonder if you can talk a bit more about what you're referencing specifically in terms of that quote and this postmodern interpretation of brain sex that sort of you know, sends the women's movement back decades, as you say. Right, because in in my view, having studied the cases from the Supreme Court that I have, like Pricewaterhouse, um, where gender identity was essentially used as a weapon against women, saying, you know, you are not feminine enough, so therefore, you know, we don't have to treat you as a human being, let alone, uh, you know, as a woman or any anyone deserving of dignity. So my fear in pushing the brain sex language, in pushing this idea that it's the way we process the world, you know, it's the way we express our personality, it's our interests, it's our aesthetic, you know, sense. The idea that that is what makes one a woman, I just find inherently insulting to the feminists that came before me and, you know, the the legal strides we have made in terms of our position in society. And one of the key takeaways I wanted people to get from my article was that the law needs to be involved in acknowledging real material differences, erasing historical remnants of discrimination, but it cannot be used to reassert these stereotypical ideas of masculinity and femininity. It just, that is not the place of the law. I wonder what was the response to your paper in your field? To be honest with you, I expected a lot of backlash and I expected it fairly soon. But within my own school, I was very excited to um, have conversations with a lot of my female peers and even my male peers at school who said that they enjoyed the article and it made them think. And to be honest with you, I haven't seen a single reaction in print online or in the Las Vegas legal community 
other than, you know, congratulations to the journal itself, the Nevada Legal Journal, for publishing the Feminist Symposium, which my article was a part of. So I am hesitantly excited to think that maybe I was able to give voice to some of the women who have been, you know, nervous in our current climate to discuss these issues because they've become unutterable. And so it's been really actually quite encouraging to see that there hasn't been a big backlash. That's not to say that, you know, next year when the round of new student notes comes out that I won't see something. But uh, I've been pleasantly surprised by the reaction. Great. I'm really happy to hear that. (laughs) (laughs) Thanks. Yeah, I know. It's a controversial thing to discuss these days. Thank you so much for talking with me about this. I really appreciate it. And I really appreciate your work. Your paper was so interesting and great. And I was so pleasantly surprised to come across it. Wonderful. Oh, it's been so great talking to you. (laughs) Yeah, you too. Thanks again. You just heard an interview with Andrea Orwall, a first-year attorney and an alumna of William S. Boyd School of Law and Whittier College. Her paper, Pregnant Persons, The Linguistic Defanging of Women's Issues and the Legal Danger of Brain Sex Language, was published in the Nevada Law Journal in 2017. That is all the time we have for today. I'm Megan Murphy. Thanks for tuning in to Feminist Current. You can find us online at feministcurrent.com, tweet at us at feministcurrent, or send us an email at info at feministcurrent.com. We are hosted by Libsyn, and you can subscribe to the Feminist Current podcast anywhere you like to listen. iTunes, Google Play, Stitcher, Pocket Cast, TuneIn, and beyond. You can even give us five stars and a review on iTunes. Show the world radical feminism is worth listening to. Feminist Current is a syndicated show produced and edited by myself, Megan Murphy, out of Vancouver, BC. If your station would like to air Feminist Current, you can find episodes at audioport.org. And finally, if you enjoyed this podcast, consider making a donation to support our work. Just visit feministcurrent.com and click the donate button.